Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This is the first interview of a new series of podcasts exploring the vast array of career opportunities available to medical students and junior doctors. My special guest today is Dr. Rob Dixon. Rob is currently a sixth-year trainee of the Australian College of Remote and Rural Medicine in the tiny Tasmanian hamlet of Queenstown and recently ventured to the southernmost continent as an Antarctic medical practitioner. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Thank you. Rob, as you know, this series of podcasts is about shining a, a torch or a light on the different types of work that people do. You're obviously very interested in remote and rural practice. What's the what's been uh, drawing you to that sort of work? It's a, I suppose like a lot of things in life, it makes a lot more sense in hindsight than it ever did at the the time. But you make a lot of choices firstly through university and then in your first few years working where you get to make a choice. Do you flock towards large metropolitan centres for the variety of training that they offer or do you choose to go down the rural line where you, you might get a bit more practical skills and have closer relationships with your colleagues and consultants and things? And during those early years, I, I chose rural, rural, rural and um, ended up sort of getting more and more rural and um, the opportunity presented itself further down the line to go very rural and remote and that's sort of the path I've found myself on on now. So I was sort of in New South Wales for a couple of years working in regional hospitals there and went to Alice Springs and that I think going to Alice or somewhere that's properly rural and remote like that opened the door to meeting a lot of people who had very varied careers especially through the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine um, I started meeting people who'd done a variety of different things and ended up going down to Antarctica last summer as I sort of carried that momentum forward and I'm now working in rural Tasmania. Rob, were you from a rural background um, originally? No, I grew up in Canberra, which I think's just a giant suburb in the middle of the country, but you couldn't really call it rural by any definition. So a lot of this has been new experience at the time, and I think that's what I meant by just not making any sort of sense with forward planning when I was going through it. So um, everything's so state-based and a lot of me always thought that I'd be going back to Sydney or something like that, but I had a lot of really positive, formative rural experiences and I think that's that what that's what must have sort of tipped me down the line at the end of the day. Is there anything that stood out in your experiences that really uh, illustrates the you know what you find so appealing about rural practice? Yeah, I, it was a it was a slow slow burn for me. I, I, I think I'd certainly enjoyed I just enjoyed being outside. So I suppose from a recreational point of view, there was a lot that working in rural places could offer. Um, the diversity as well in terms of the people that you meet and the work that you get to do and the and your ability to I suppose build a bit of identity for yourself as a doctor relatively early in your career um that all really appealed to me i think it's a we've sort of increasingly realized over the last few years that it's actually a very exciting place to be a relatively junior doctor in um australia has some incredible rural challenges that um it's always going to struggle to meet and a lot of that's about geography there really isn't any other country maybe canada's a close parallel where you have so many diverse communities that are just so diverse sort of comparing rural communities in Victoria to the top end to places down in Tasmania 
they're so diverse and they're just separated by such large distances that um, a large tertiary hospital in Melbourne or Hobart or Sydney is never going to be able to surface the communities that are hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away. And for that reason, there really is a role for what these days they call rural generalists, so primary care practitioners with extended skill sets who can work very sort of diverse and satisfying jobs to meet the particular needs of the very particular community they work in. I mean, you, you just don't see that kind of need in other countries and in Europe and in lots of parts of North America where you might have a large hospital every 20 kilometres or so that can take the bulk of that extra care. So it's a very uniquely Australian challenge and um, I think that's what's really buoyed me and pushed me along over the last few years, realising that it was such a dynamic and exciting space to be working in. One of the things that seems to unite all of those things, though, is the capacity to have a broad understanding and a broad set of skills. Is it difficult in your training phase to to appreciate the breadth of things that you'll need to, to take with you into that sort of career? I think yes and no, because it is hard to plan down the line, because as I sort of alluded to before, there's certain skills that would be high demand in one corner of Australia and certain that would be less in another. But but certainly I found as I moved through junior hospital years and did some senior resident jobs and registrar jobs in different parts of hospitals and different hospitals, it became quite clear that ACRAM, which is the College for Rural and Remote Medicine, um, has already done a lot of the heavy mental lifting for you. So they have a very, their curriculum is very broad and very sort of malleable sort of allowing you to seek the training opportunities that you think that you need to be an effective practitioner but then also sort of setting down a, a bit of a line in terms of getting a broad bit of training in all the different corners of obstetrics and paediatrics and emergency medicine and anaesthetics that will equip you to work in any town really so I think vocationally um, I hadn't really heard much about it going through university especially going through the lecture halls in Sydney and things like that, um, you don't hear much about the College of Rural and Remote Medicine, but they're, they're a relatively new college, um, been going for a couple of decades now, but they, they certainly have um, quite a structured approach to allowing you to develop a broad set of skills. But what I like about it is that the, the rest of it really is up to you. They're very encouraging in terms of if you have a plan and you have a goal and you have a vision of what kind of skills you'd like to bring to Australia's healthcare system, they'll do their best to help you um, achieve that, help you get it accredited, help you find a way to work that into your working life. Now, Rob, one of the most uh, remote and rural practices that you could possibly uh, imagine would be in Antarctica. You had the opportunity to do that, to spend three months over there in the summer of uh, 1819. Can you tell us how you went about preparing for that sort of uh, expedition? I think it was quite a few years of mental preparation beforehand. I'd, I'd known about Antarctica for a long time. I went to a, a primary school in Canberra in the suburb of Mawson and made Antarctic dioramas for early sort of schooling life. So I always knew about Antarctica and I was always captivated by those stories of Mawson and Scott and Amundsen. But it took a little bit longer to realise that Australia actually has a really, uh, I suppose, a, a really important role down there. Australia's got about a 40% territorial claim based on the coastline mapping that Mawson did over 100 years ago and manned three stations all year round on the ice as well as one on the sub-Antarctic islands, Macquarie Island. And the science that's happening down there is just 
incredibly important from an environmental point of view. Um, the climate science they do, the atmospheric science, the ocean science, and it sort of really appealed to me to sort of be able to support and be a part of such important work that's being done for for our for our planet. So the idea was seated in my head. I, I went and did a, a an expedition wilderness medicine course in Tasmania that's run by the University of Tasmania and the Antarctic Division and met people there who had gone down and done it before and you hear in lots of different capacities not just medical um, and they're amazing stories it was an amazing adventure but it was quite a few years before I came around to the idea that it was actually something that I could do and it was a good adventure for me I'd I suppose been lucky in that I had had quite a generalist type experience before going down there but certainly I didn't really think that someone as a registrar could could go down there and fulfill all the needs I'd, I mean I can't do I've never done a burr hole of oversewing peptic sort of ulcers and doing a DNC and doing anesthetic solo it all just seemed it was way out of my my skill set but the more I looked into it the more I, I realized that you're not down there as a completely solo independent practitioner you're there as part of a team that uses technology and a lot of specialist input and familiarity with the context down there to achieve medical outcomes and it is very doable so once I decided I got over that mental hurdle and applied I think I was at the right place at the right time and was lucky enough to be able to go down there and give it a go I spent about four months training with the Antarctic Division before I went down there there's a lot of in-house training to learn the real specifics about what they're trying to achieve down there because it's I suppose a very different way to approaching medicine to what I was used to in a hospital and community setting I mean, it's very sort of occupational health heavy and it's all obviously about prevention like a lot of expedition type medicine it's about preventing things going wrong because just by the virtue of geography you don't have the capacity to deal with things in the most optimal way so and um, a lot of it's about preventing things going wrong and really understanding what the um, the Antarctic Division is trying to achieve down there. We also did a lot of very niche upskilling in areas that I never thought I'd get more training in. I mean, dentistry is a great example where we did a two-week dental course at the Royal Dental Hospital in Melbourne, which was very illuminating to all these things that I'd probably sort of glanced my eyes over and thrown antibiotics at in the past. Um, being able to actually get in there and try and fix things and have a go was empowering. And then you're a, you're a one-person medical workforce down there, so you got trained up in how to take x-rays and take care of your pharmacy stock and provide physiotherapy and a lot of the sort of the healthcare management and hospital setup type type roles that I hadn't had any experience in really gave me an appreciation for how much work goes into making a hospital run. And I understand that you you also had to prepare a lot for the non-medical type roles that you might play down there as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So it's a very small, isolated community. And I mean, that comes with all the obvious challenges and then a lot of subtle other ones that I suppose you only realise once you're, once you're down there. But certainly there's a big focus on getting the team dynamics right. The big saving grace, though, is that everyone you're down there with you, you've got something in common which is that you've all signed up for a real adventure and everyone's thrilled to be there so that immediate sort of positivity and the discovery of the new is something that you can share with people and bond with really well but 
there was a, obviously a lot of discussion um, amongst the group of doctors that I was training with as, and the three permanent doctors that work at the Antarctic Division who coordinate the medical care down there, going through thousands of different what-ifs that, what-ifs this, working out how to negotiate that fine line of being part of a community but also being able to be the doctor for someone. I mean, that's one of the the, the hardest things about being down there is that you need to be approachable to people. You need to be a human being, but at the same time, um, you need to be able to sort of switch into a more doctor mode and, and deal with someone's problems if they come up, deal with emergencies if they happen, but be someone who someone who's having an issue that's personal, private, they wouldn't normally share with someone who's a colleague or friend can, can come to. So you have to... <laughs> it's a, obviously a, like a bit of bit of bit of a, a balance and an art, but uh, one that it wasn't until I got down there that I realised how difficult that can be to achieve sometimes. And that's one um, of the challenges, yeah. I guess, isn't it, of remote and rural practice? I would imagine that the, the same sort of thing would uh, would be the case in in other environments that you've worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the town that I'm in at the moment is on the west coast of Tasmania. It's a little town called Queenstown that has about 1,600 people, not to be confused with the New Zealand Queenstown. Um, it's a bit smaller, and all those things happen. I mean, it, it, there is a, it's impossible not to be a part of the community, and for my own sake and for any doctor's sake working in a small place, you, you really need to be able to make friends with people and, and know people in a social context, but there's always going to be the situation where you, you know someone well, but then you have to provide medical care for them and that can get infinitely complicated as you can imagine. Now Rob what sort of work were you doing when you're down in Antarctica? I would imagine that the the type of case mix that you have is is not necessarily reflective of the the general community that all be relatively healthy people but what sort of things did you see and what sort of work did you do while you were there? Again this it was a, it was a big mental shift away from the work that I was used to in Australia, where I suppose I've always thought that as a, as a doctor, you're very reactive to what's going on around you. There's rarely times when you don't have something to do. And, and I've always, I remember thinking that those, those rare moments on a night shift or something like that, when you, you really wouldn't have anything to do, everyone would just sort of sit there and would sort of look a bit sort of stunned and things like that. It's a very reactive job where you're used to people coming to you from every angle, phones ringing with work, with jobs, with medical care that needs to be provided. But what you say is 100% true. It's a very small number of people that are down there. They're all medically screened. They they don't have really much at all by the way of medical conditions. I mean, people with asthma don't even go down there. So there's no kids, there's no pregnant women, there's no elderly people, there's no chronic disease, there's no major psychiatric or drug and alcohol problems and you're sort of crossing off the list of what would be sort of 99% of what you'd see in a hospital right there and then. So it can be a bit, I suppose, disarming as a doctor down there and required me to really reconsider what you could provide as a healthcare practitioner. I mean, a lot of your job is setting up and preparing for the worst, but then also preventing that from ever happening. So you go through a lot of medical stock, you're in charge of all the maintenance of all the equipment, you do a lot of training for the expeditions that are down there so that, again, they can sort of prevent things going wrong. There's medical kits in every building and hut and vehicle that need to be turned over and a lot of the job comes down to that really, but 
it's certainly it's a it's an opportunity to i suppose make something of it if you know what i mean you can you can go into the community and you can um i suppose work out ways that you can engage with people on different levels and prevent things from going wrong and it's an opportunity to get out there and do the healthcare in the way that you way that you think yeah Robert, imagine that the system also relies on other people. I mean, you can't physically do everything at the same time in some circumstances. So I would imagine you'd be involved in training and supporting other people who are not necessarily medically trained. Is that right? Yes. I think that's, this has got great novelty value to it and it's an exciting part of the being a doctor down there. But they, they pick four lucky expeditioners and most expeditioners going down there are tradespeople. Um, to be lay surgical assistants, so two scrub-type nurses and two anaesthetic-type nurses, and they go to the Royal Hobart for a two-week crash course in surgery and anaesthetics. So they sort of get whipped into line by the very experienced theatre nurses at the Royal and um, from day one get thrown into sort of caesareans and cardiothoracic surgery and learn about sterile fields and anaesthetic gases. And it's amazing what such practically-minded tradespeople can achieve in sort of a two-week block, and, and then they're part of your core team down there, so you do a lot of training with them on the on the ground and going through the very analogue anaesthetic machine that we've got and, and opening up bits of, um, sort of surgical equipment. And um, they're there for the very unlikely circumstance of being uh, being needing needing to provide an anaesthetic and perform an operation but there also you go to people for being dental assistants and holding mirrors and suction and helping you out if you needed to suture laceration and um, helping that there were also the people that I suppose would provide a bit of respite for you if you did have to admit someone into the little ward that you've got down there they were the ones who can sit and monitor them with the with the obs on a on a, on a tablet in front of them that are getting beamed back to Kingston in Tasmania, where the head office doctors are also watching. So, it's a it's a quite a quite a, a fun way of overcoming that situation of how do you get extra hands. So, um, yeah, I was, I was I was quite interested to learn that, but it made a lot of sense when you're down there to have um, a, a small team of medically trained people down there that can can help in those situations. And it's another thing where all all this works so well because they have such well well-groomed technological pathways that allow really seamless communication between the Antarctic bases and, and Tasmania. So um, a lot of the cognitive burden for you as a doctor as well as these lay surgical assistants is off-laid. So we'd all have people in our ears on the headsets and things telling us the processes and what needs to be done next and offering avenues to, for questions to be asked. So if there was a complex medical situation or resuscitation or something like that going on, then each individual group looking after the um, the patient, you as the doctor, the the, the two anaesthetic um, plumbers or carpenters running the anaesthetic machine and the surgical assistants who are going and getting stock and things like that, uh, they could all be given instructions by the um, sort of the instant control group um, back in Tasmania. So it's a the more you think about it, the more you realise how complicated this whole process is. But they've been doing it for so many years, and it it just works. Robert, must have crossed your mind at some point during this journey that you yourself might get sick. What are the sorts of contingencies that go into that sort of uh, scenario? Yeah, and it's it's something that 
one of the reasons why it took me a little while after meeting Antarctic doctors and other expeditioners and getting completely wrapped up in enthusiasm for the adventure that you do need to consider because going to such a remote place there's all these there are inherent risks to consider Australia still does require prophylactic appendectomies for the doctors wintering down there they've had a few bad experiences in the past and there's a famous example of the Russian doctor having to take out their own appendix so I think it's easier to get it out in its uninflamed form before you go um, but 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 cer certainly there have been a couple of instances even just in recent years and some of them made the ABC news and things like that where there was a, a doctor who broke her broke a wrist and it needed a bit of a um, reduction so that was done all through telehealth and and her lay surgical assistants who had been trained by her were able to give her wrist a bit of a push and set it in plaster while um, I think she was slightly lightly sedated during the time as well so there's those avenues around it but at the end of the day and I think this sort of is true for a lot of areas of remote medicine you can only really do what you can do and, and you can't overcome physical barriers like distance. So if in the middle of winter someone was to get really sick, at the end of the day, all the best laid technology and medical equipment and training can only go so far. So that is a consideration for everyone that goes down there. Um, you do have to have that chat with both yourself and your loved ones um, that if something was to go wrong, then obviously there's uh, sort of I'm a bit of a believer that a lot of health outcomes can be linked back to geography. There's there's there are definitely good and bad places to have a heart attack, good and bad places to have a stroke, and good and bad places to have an accident. And and certainly you wouldn't want to have an accident in Antarctica. So it's about being very mindful, I suppose, of what you do. And and when you think about that, you can understand why it is a very risk-averse culture down there and how there are quite stringent workplace health and safety measures in place to try and stop people getting hurt. But, yeah, I hope that answers that question. Rob, one of the interesting things that I've seen you write before is that one of your roles was to triage effectively who would need to be sent home and, and the impact of those decisions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I think that's, again, that's something that, Working in bigger hospitals, I'd, I really felt this sense of patients coming in, they're complicated, they're very interesting, there's a lot going on, there's very sort of streamlined, um, capable teams with mentors on every corner that are, are dealing with these incredibly stressful situations. So how, how could that be as interesting as primary care? Or And, and I, I think that's obviously something I've come full circle about because um, I'm very, very satisfied working as a as a general practitioner um, at the moment. Um, and a lot of that's to do with the fact that the context in which a person gets sick and who they are can create really, really interesting logistical conundrums about what to do. So very simple things that go wrong in Antarctica have a huge flow-on effect in terms of what that could mean. So something as simple as a, a skin spot that's changing on someone or a, a few little lymph nodes that you notice that weren't quite <laughs> weren't quite there and there's no good reason why they're up. So suddenly all these things in young healthy people that you might be looking past and ignoring and let's just see how that goes in three months can can have 
a whole different flavour to them if you have to consider that that person is not going to be able to get definitive care for 12 months or so. Um, it's a very complicated the operational requirements of what the division is trying to achieve down there. They're very reliant on on people to, to fulfil a multiple different roles and they've got big objectives and there's a lot of funding and money and time and experience and planning that goes into it all. So all that needs to be balanced against um, what's the worst case scenario and what happens if someone does develop a significant medical issue in winter where evacuation isn't possible. Um, luckily, the three doctors who run the polar medical unit through the division are very, very experienced in all this. And again, it goes back to the idea that they've been doing it for so many years and there's so much institutional experience that everything that can go, on, go wrong has gone wrong. Uh, and they're the ones that you work with to try and work out what the best solution is for, for people. Um, in some circumstances, that might be um, getting them out early and saying that they can't continue the season, they can't stay for winter. And so in rare circumstances, they might need to send a plane down specifically if it's summertime to, to pick someone up and take them back because the risk just isn't isn't worth it. So, yeah, it, it's a very interesting take on, on medicine. And to me, it illustrates how rural and remote medicine can be incredibly satisfying because you're, you're treating someone that you know and you, you know them well and a lot of the interest comes not just from the cellular, cellular and pathological complexity of what the person has, but from the logistics and constraints that are around that that turn something that would be very simple and routine in one part of Australia to something that's in, <laughs> incredibly challenging in another. So there's no doubt that you're challenged by anything down there. Now, Rob, as the saying goes, we work to live, not live to work. And in your case, your work has given you a unique opportunity from a life perspective. Can you tell us what life is like down there and some of the experiences that you had outside medicine? Yeah, certainly. So it's profound and I found it to be a profound professional and personal experience. And a lot of people have that impression when they go down there. I mean the dramatic beauty and the absolutely awe-inspiring power of nature that you're around it, you, you, right from the get-go, you're under no false assumptions that humans aren't meant to be there and, and we are very fragile creatures um, braced against the forces of, of, of nature. So to be in somewhere day in, day out, especially over summer where there's essentially 24 hours of daylight, and to be just so overwhelmed at every turn by the environment that you're in, sharing this experience with um, a group of people that are also, all those, especially those going there for the first time, are completely overawed by the world they're in is, is quite a surreal experience. It's, it's just so far out of the the day-to-day -day familiarity that I was used to before I went down there. And I think it's the best way I've sort of felt to describe it is it's it's like when you go camping and you look up at the stars above you at night and suddenly all the problems of life just are put back into perspective because you're just overawed by how big the world is and you're not you don't feel insignificant but at the same time you just feel content that a lot of a lot of what we experience is just storms in teacups so Antarctica had that experience for me and Australia has a real I suppose it's part of their mission statement is that the expeditioners down there have a powerful experience and and 
it's something I really respect about the the division and and the culture that they're trying to create there. They're, they're balancing their huge operational requirements um, and um, their their need to keep everyone safe and um, sort of mitigate as much risk as they possibly can. Um, but they also still want to sort of hold on to the idea that people are going down there and potentially having a one of the most significant experiences of their lives, and they want to try and foster that. So. From a recreational point of view, it's, it's very sort of defined and regulated where you can go, where you can't go, what kind of gear you need to go in certain places, who you need to tell, um, times that you can do it, um, weather, weather conditions which prohibit certain areas. It, it gets very complicated when you first get there, but got used to it quite quickly. But they have little huts that you can organise and book recreational trips at weekends and things like that to to visit, they have a little ski loop where you can could take the little cross country skis. All the stations that Australia has are by the coast as well, so um, it's it's especially in summer where the snow levels and ice levels are a bit lower. It's rocky, it's beautiful. You can walk down to the water's edge and you can stare out to the horizon. So there's a lot of awe inspiring nature to be seen at every turn, and there's a few outdoor places that you can organise to go with, and they're very treasured and special experiences to have. And then the stations themselves are, are very well set up for um, creature comforts and all the needs. There's a little cinema, there's people who are doing boxing every day and there's gyms and there's extensive libraries and things like that. There's musical instruments. You do fall, you're falling over guitars down there and there's just a lot of people that are just happy to chat. So, I mean, there's a lot of those familiar things of just bonding with people and making friends. And then there's also these outdoor experiences that can take a little while to organise. So, And the reason for that is so that you do them safely. Um, but you treasure every moment of it. It sounds absolutely wondrous, Rob. It must have been difficult to come back, back to earth, as it were, from an experience like that. Yeah, and there's, again, I, I was there for a relatively short time. I was... I was the reserve on the bench, so I was, I was. If one of the other doctors couldn't do the, the full winter down there, I, I would have gone and done that very happily. And I think the the winter is a bit of a different experience. And you, you talk to people who've been down there, living, for lack of a better word, quite an institutionalised life where, you you don't go to the you, you you don't use money, you don't lock anything, you don't do shopping. People prepare your food for you. Um, you don't need to think about what you wear. You just—it's <laughs> a—it's a very different life, and and people I think have various degrees of um, adjustment problems getting back. I think certainly even just for a short time, you notice that when you come back, suddenly you're in this world of new sounds and smells, and um, even for me, just going away and just not seeing any darkness for for three months was was odd. The first night to come back and the sun to actually actually go down, but. I was lucky that I was able to really continue that adventure out west in 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 Tassie in a, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm continuing the adventure still. What have you learnt from your time in Antarctica that you now apply to uh, the career ahead of you? Yeah, so I suppose as I spoke about before, I mean. I've got a few extra skills in areas which I find useful and that includes the things like the physiotherapy is incredible and the having a bit of extra dental knowledge goes a, a really long way too. But it's a bit more subtle, I suppose, the, the things that it taught me the most and certainly 
that appreciation of how much work goes into providing healthcare and how complicated it is to run even small hospitals and the amount of effort that so many people were putting into to keep it stocked and cleaned and functional, um, that's a powerful bit of perspective to carry with. But for me, a lot of it, and this translates well into the remote medicine, a lot of it is the decision-making because you learn a lot, especially as a junior, from having to make decisions. And that might be not necessarily decisions about how to definitively manage someone, but decisions about when to escalate, escalate your concerns, um, when to when to... I suppose investigate further and what you can sort of safely put in the wait and see basket. So, for me, going to an area that was just so obscenely remote and removed from any kind of backup was difficult mentally uh, to begin with, but became increasingly comfortable as I settled into the role. Uh, working in remote areas, even just in Tasmania where I am now, there's certainly times when there's no medical backup available. So to have that experience down in Antarctica, and I think that what saves it down there is that you, you you can achieve a lot by getting advice over the phone and knowing who to contact and certainly by knowing the people that you're liaising with to get advice from. And when I moved here to the West Coast, I'd also had a job up in Burnie, which is the referral hospital for Little Queenstown here. And it just makes such a difference. And to know the people that you're referring to, know the people that um, are going to be helping you manage complex situations. And that was a, a real Antarctic lesson for me about how many problems regarding Australia's rural remote spots can be addressed by A, technology, and B, understanding your referral pathways and, and having collegial relationships with the people that you refer to. So they're lessons that I'll carry with me for, for life and, and certainly they, they run a very, very tight medical service down at Casey Station where I was and that's my benchmark now. So I sort of feel that if you're if I'm working in a small spot elsewhere in Australia, Australia in a small town, if, if they can do it down in Casey, then surely they can do it um, anywhere. Rob, it's been a privilege and a, a delight to talk to you about your experiences both in Antarctica and as part of your training. So thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. That's fine, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more fantastic interviews just like this one, visit our website at osla.force.com.